Well, today uh, we're going to continue in the series we've been in on Kingdom DNA, and we're going to talk about one of the the threads uh, that's really specific to us, and we're going to talk about night and day worship and prayer. And we're talking about the the uh, the biblical sort of um, theological backdrop to how do we get to the idea that we want to do live worship and prayer all day, all night? Where do we get that idea from? It's, it's not something we pulled out of our minds or just a cool charismatic thing to do. It's actually got a richness in the Bible. And this is a centerpiece of who we are, that everything we do comes from the place of worship and prayer to Jesus. We engage him and we live in a a lifestyle of intimacy with him. And from that place, all the rest of our ministry flows. Nothing else takes the preeminence. Jesus alone is preeminent. Amen. Let's have a word of prayer and we'll get into this. So Lord, we love you so much. We're so grateful for you, how you lead. We're so grateful to be called by your name. I'm so thankful to be born again today. I was lost and you loved me and you changed me and you saved me and you sanctified me and you've done that miracle for so many of us and we're grateful today, we're grateful. And so Lord, even right now I'm asking, let the spirit of revelation fall on this room. Bring us in to the knowledge of who you are. Bring us in to the revelation from the scripture of what it means for Jesus to have the preeminence and your your leadership that has led your people through the ages to place your presence at the center of of the uh, community of faith. Show us even now how this applies to us. And Lord, we, we say we want your will, your way. Now hold my hand, I pray. Let me speak as your oracle. We give you thanks in Jesus' name. Everybody said amen. I was there in worship thinking about Colossians 1.18 where it says to Jesus, to him belongs the preeminence, preeminence. That's like a good like $10 word right there, preeminence, preeminence, four full syllables. <laughs> I was thinking about that word and it just simply means this, to Jesus belongs the center place in everything. He gets the center place in everything. And in our, our prayer time before service this morning, just, you know, we come together as pastors and then we come together with the worship team and we pray. But in both of those prayer times, this idea of Jesus being the center. You know, the, the church building isn't the center. And the programs of the church are not the center. And the preaching isn't the center. And the music isn't the center. And, and, and executing the worship, performing the worship, that's not the center. The people are not the center. We don't want to hear that, do we? Jesus is the center. Jesus is the center. He's the center of the kingdom of God. He's the center of the throne room of God. He's the center of the church, his body of which we are all members. Jesus Christ is the center. And I tell you, we're in a time right now where God is repossessing his church. 
He's clearing the slate and he's putting one figure, one man at the center, Jesus Christ. The personalities on the platform are not the center and the programs are not the center. They are all outcomes and all tools that we use to ultimately gather around Jesus. This morning we've come to gather around Jesus. And I was so grateful for the worship team and the way they led because every song was right to Jesus, about his worth, about his preeminence. And that's really the heartbeat behind why we do 24-hour worship and prayer. Now, I just wanna, I know we say it regularly, and at times you can say night and day prayer or 24-hour worship and prayer, and it becomes cliche, but I wanna just slowly kind of unpack this for us so it gets really, really clear in our minds what we're a part of and, and what we're giving our energies to. And I'll tell a little bit of my testimony. I was a youth pastor at uh, a, a, an amazing church here in our city that we're in great relationship with, Victory World Church. I was a youth pastor there for 13 years. My wife and I, we worked and, and helped see that church grow from six members to 3,500 members. While, while we were there, now it wasn't us, but that's what we saw happen. When my mom is sitting over here. It started in her daycare center, hallelujah. And it's, uh, I mean, it's a fantastic testimony. And they're coming up, I think, on 25 years. And um, just, a, just that's a, a beautiful, powerful ministry there. And they've, they've been so kind to us as a spiritual family, so kind to my family. But for 13 years, I was a youth pastor there. And, and literally, when everything was hitting on all cylinders, I mean, it was just awesome. The youth ministry was huge. 350 young people. I had 75 volunteers. I had 25 interns. I had five full-time staff just for the youth ministry. Right in the middle of that, the Lord breaks in and speaks dynamically to me in many, many, many ways that he wants me to fire myself (laughs) and transition and move to Kansas City to learn the values and the vision and the message and the model of the house of prayer to start one of them here in Atlanta. And when I started telling people that, it, it really sounded like I was, people were just like, so what are you doing now? Like, are you losing it, man? I literally had a guy tell me this really did happen. Three years later, I'm talking to a minister friend that I hadn't talked to in a few years. and. He said, he called me up and said, hey, bro, I just want to check on you. How are you doing? I'm doing good. He goes, yeah, you doing, you doing okay? I go, yeah, I'm doing great. House of prayer's going, praise God. He goes, yeah, so, so how did the hospital go? I said, I'm sorry? He goes, yeah, I heard that you kind of, you had to get checked into a mental hospital. He literally said this to me. I go, I'm sorry? Like, I thought you were joking. I, are you joking? He goes, Oh yeah, I heard you had like a breakdown or something. (laughs) True story. I go, no, I didn't have a breakdown. I followed Jesus and I moved to Kansas City. Anyway, we moved our family to Kansas City. The Lord orchestrated something dynamic, so clear. Our pastors were in favor. They blessed us, sent us. We moved to Kansas City and we spent a year at IHOP Kansas City learning message model, vision, values, 
And I, when I show up there, I'm convinced we're gonna build a house of prayer in Atlanta. And in three months of being there, I'm convinced there's no way this is gonna work. I'm sure. I don't know anything they're talking about. They're saying words I don't even understand. They're talking about bridal paradigm. They're talking theological terms. They're, and they're 25 and 26 year olds throwing around Bible passages from the Old Testament and from the New Testament that I've never even really considered. And they're using them commonplace. And I'm thinking, I am so ill-equipped and unprepared. I could never, never do this. So three months in, me and the Lord, I quit. Have you ever quit what the Lord asked you to do? I quit, it would be the first of about 100 times that I've quit, hallelujah. And the Lord didn't take my resignation, thankfully. <clears throat> and he told me, just keep trying. That was exactly what he said, just keep trying. I'm blessed that you're even trying. Just keep trying. And so I remember we moved back to Atlanta and we started, we had 40 people start with us and we started 40 hours a week of worship and prayer. And it went to about 75 hours a week in a very short period of time. And we were, we were uh, borrowing another church facility. Bart Jones was part of that church. You guys remember that? I mean, we're showing up there. And, and, and I mean, and Chris, I don't know if you're here, but I mean, we would show up there and, and we didn't have a sign. We didn't have a phone number. We had a website. That was it. If you had to actually get lost, find yourself into our parking lot to know where the prayer meeting was. If you're in the room and you ever came to one of those prayer meetings on Indian Trail, yeah, look, so fun. All right, yeah. And, and it went to 75 hours a week of prayer. People were coming. And then it went to 120 hours a week. And I remember... It went to 120 hours because I had this young guy who was just fired up. He goes, I'm going to do the night watch. And I was like, are you saved? <laughs> like, just say the name Jesus and let's just, let's just negotiate this a little bit. And he, he was, he was on fire for the Lord, fresh out of the world, but on fire for the Lord. He goes, I'm going to do the night watch. And the Lord added people. And we went 24 hours a day, five days a week. I mean, it went like that in like nine months. And I felt like I'd caught a tiger by the tail. And I remember grabbing Stephen Eugen and Scott Keller, who that was like the only leadership team we had. We went into our little office, which was about the size of the front of this stage. And I grabbed them and I said, hey, you guys think this thing's going to work? They go, w what do you mean? I go, do you think we're going to go 24-7? They go, well, yeah. What are you thinking? I go, well, I think, yeah, yeah, it's going to happen. And I started thinking, I need to get about this because I had assumed we were going to come, try to do this thing. It was just not going to work. It was, it was going to be a failure. And unless the Lord builds the house, you just move back to Kansas City. That's what I thought. And so I, uh, you know, we get to 120 hours. These guys are like, of course it's going to happen. And then in, at the 16-month mark, it went 24-7. And at that time, it was like, Man, it's really happening. And, and I guess in my mind at the time, I thought, once we go 24-7, global thermonuclear revival is going to break out. Glory will be falling from the sky. We are going to have mass revival all over the city of Atlanta, and, and the kingdom is going to come, and amen. But it didn't. We just 
had 24-hour prayer. In fact, the warfare that we experienced as soon as we went 24-7 was the worst season of spiritual warfare I've ever had in my life. I almost give no time to talking about spiritual warfare and the devil because Christians get, they get mystical and spooky about it, but it was the worst warfare I've ever experienced in my life, and it was so hard. Getting a year of 24-7 was so hard spiritually. The pressure was so intense, but it happened. And then it went two years, and then it went three, and, and the, the numbers were going pretty good. Like people were there, and, and, and we had you know, people raising their own support to do this, and, and missionaries were coming, and, and, and they were just pouring themselves out before the Lord, and five years, and seven years, and nine years, and 10 years, and we're up to 13 years now, and there's been so many people over the years that have poured themselves out in our prayer meeting, worshiping Jesus to a mostly empty room. That's what it looks like, in a, in a sense, to put Jesus at the center you know, you might be a gifted singer and musician if the first thought is, who's gonna be listening to me in a horizontal way, then I would tell you, you need to reorient where you're targeting your gift. Because he didn't give you your gifts for people first, he gave you your gifts for him first. We're for his pleasure first, and then his glory so his pleasure and his glory. So whatever God gives us to use, it's not ours, it's his, and it's for his pleasure and his glory. We minister to him by utilizing those gifts. So over the years, it's become evident to me that with a little bit of people, a little bit of money, that the 24-7 worship and prayer meeting that Literally, it started in 2006 to go 24-7. It hasn't stopped since, maybe 30 seconds when the guy dropped his guitar that one time. But I mean, literally, it hasn't stopped since. It broke the string and, oh no, and you get the other guitar. But uh, it hasn't stopped since. It's become so evident to me that it's nothing short of miraculous. It's a miracle. We didn't have the money. We didn't have the notoriety. We didn't have the personnel, we've never had it, and it's continued night and day, sometimes hanging on by a thread. Sometimes the fire on the altar was like embers with just a little flicker coming out of the top. I mean, just barely hanging on. But the Lord has continued to see to it that there's a place of worship that's open all day, all night for the glory of Jesus He's continued to see to it that that place exists right here in our city. Now, that's our spiritual family. That's us. That's who we are at the, at the center. Everything we do comes from that place of intimacy and that place of prayer. I want you to think about something. In our nation today, there's actually three 24-7s. There's Iop, Kansas City, which just celebrated 20 years. There's David's tent, which is on the mall in front of the White House. Did you know there's a 24-7 live worship and prayer meeting in front of the White House for the last four years? Jason Hersey, who leads that thing, I'm, I look at him and he's got that wild look in his eye a little bit. And I just think, it takes a guy like you to do this because it's outside in a tent in Washington, D.C., and the volunteers don't come from a local community like most of ours do. They come from all over the nation. 
It's stunning to me. So we literally have a canopy of worship and prayer covering the White House in our nation 24 hours a day, seven days a week, right there in DC. It's just powerful. So there's Kansas City, there's David's tent, and there's us. That's it in the whole nation, guys. And in the earth, I can probably count the live worship-led expressions that I know of that are 24-7, I think I can count them on one hand, maybe two. We have one of just a handful of these expressions in the earth that goes around the clock, right here. It's right down the street. It's open right now. There's somebody in there right now. And this is our spiritual family. All right, so I'm emphasizing that and telling you my story a little bit just so you get clear that this is a very central piece of who we are. And and, and so what I wanna do is I wanna explain this, that it's only been the grace of God that's enabled this to happen, but I wanna give you something that's really clear biblically that this isn't an idea that any one of, you know, these leaders of these houses of prayer have, have come up with on their own. This is an idea that's deeply rooted in the scripture. There's a, a clear biblical precedent and a clear biblical pattern to what we do. And it's very, very powerful when you understand what the scripture says, and then you see the obedience that we're walking in, and then you see the sovereign element of God who's bringing these things to pass at this time. So I I wanna look at this a little bit. So um, undoubtedly you've heard uh, the term somewhere sometime tabernacle of David. Tabernacle of David. If you've never heard that term, that's a term that you know describes a very unusual and 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 powerful uh, reality that was at the center of David's kingdom. When David was the king of Israel, at the center of his rulership, he set up a tabernacle. First Chronicles 16, you can read the whole chapter, it describes when they set it up. First Chronicles 16 or Second uh, Samuel 7 says it's the same, same account. David, many times people teach about when David went and got the Ark of the Covenant and brought it back to Jerusalem because it had been lost um, in the time of Eli and had stayed outside of Israel's uh, you know, control for the, for the whole time that Saul was king. And, and, and people kind of focus on this journey of getting the Ark and bringing it back to Jerusalem, but they don't actually get the punchline. Why was David going to get the Ark? He was going to bring it back, First Chronicles 16 says, and set it up in a tent that he had prepared for it. In 1 Chronicles 16, 2 Samuel 7, it breaks it down for us and explains to us exactly what happened the day that he brought it back. He actually threw a huge party. He fed the whole nation. Everybody got a cake and a piece of meat. Glory to God. And then he turned to the worship leaders and said, I want you to sing and worship the Lord. And from that time forward, the entirety of David's reign, there never ceased to be live worship and prayer before the Ark of the Covenant. 
That's the tabernacle of David. It was a 33.5 year, 33 and a half year worship meeting before the Ark of the Covenant. Now again, the Ark of the Covenant, it was what God instructed Moses to, to, to make, to hold certain implements, and it was the centerpiece of Moses' tabernacle. It was, where the, it was in, placed in the Holy of Holies, and it's where the glory of God dwelt. So when David went and got the ark, halfway of, uh, of him bringing it back, you remember the story, he put it on a cart and the cart stumbled and, and Uzzah reached out and he, this, this guy that was attending the, the, the ark and the cart, he reached out to touch the ark with his hand and when he did, the ark, it was, it was animated with the glory of God so much that when he touched it, it, it struck him dead. So David had to park the ark at a guy named Obed-Edom's house, who ultimately him and his family ended up becoming gatekeepers for the tabernacle. He had to park it there for a while. He had to go back and read the law. He had to figure out what is this deal. And then he realized, oh, the ark can't be carried on a new cart and driven by oxen. It's got to be carried on the shoulders of priests. You know, we can't carry the glory of God on man's methods. We have to carry the glory of God in the way that God has prescribed. It's got to be carried by a people who are trying to live their lives ministering to the Lord. The priests had to carry the ark, so they realized, oh, there's these rings on the side of the ark. We've got to put these poles through the rings, and then we've got to carry the ark. And what we're going to do is we're going to take it back to Jerusalem. It was about 18 miles outside of Jerusalem, and they got the priest to, to lift the ark and put it on their shoulders. And here's what they did. David realized this is no game. When you're bringing back the ark, when you're getting the glory of God in your midst, God says, oh, I see you're taking me seriously. I'll be serious too. God's like not just gonna come for a show. He's gonna come in the fullness of who he is. And when he comes in the fullness of who he is, he comes in fire. He comes in glory. He comes in majesty. And that's why the ark began to get animated again with the glory of God. So they put it on their shoulders and here's what they did. They took six steps. They stopped, put it back down, and then they sacrificed. And they took six more steps, stopped, put it down, and sacrificed. And for 18 miles, six steps, sacrifice, six steps, sacrifice, six steps, sacrifice, all the way into Jerusalem. The trail of blood and burnt flesh and smoke that, that went from Obed-Edom's all the way to, to Jerusalem. And for us, it would be some horrific sight. And here's the thing that we've got to just deal with. The things that repulse the flesh of men draws the spirit of God. We don't always want things the way God wants it. Think about it. We, we like things comfortable. We like the air conditioning just right. We like nice padding on the seats. You're like, well, what's wrong with that? Well, nothing. But if we make everything about how we like it at church, guess who gets the preeminence? We do. But if we recognize that it's not about us. It's about him at the center, his, his presence, his personality at the center. Something shifts in the way that we, that we 
operate, the way that we focus. You know, when I hear believers, I've been doing this about 25 years now, full-time ministry, and I hear believers talk about church like they own the church, like the church is for them, like it's their thing for them. I realize we have almost no revelation of what the church really is. The church is the assembly sent out from heaven. You and I are citizens of another place and the church are the ambassadors that are coming from that place and the one who we're coming from, we're living on his behalf and we're living by his command and we're living by, by his desire and, and his, his pleasure. We serve the king and church is for him. When we come together, we come together around him. I need to get a better amen right now. I'm preaching way better than y'all are amen in this morning. Is this okay? But I'm, okay, I'm good with this. All right. Six-step sacrifice, six-step sacrifice, bring it back to Jerusalem. First Chronicles 16, David throws a party, hands Asaph, the chief song leader, two psalms, and he says, go ahead, start. And they start worshiping. And listen, from that day forward in David's kingdom, the very centerpiece was worship and praise before the ark with the glory of God in the midst. Most people don't realize this. Most of the Psalms of David were written in that place of glory. David references this multiple, multiple times in the scripture. He talks about, I will meditate on your glorious splendor. I want to dwell before your presence in the place your glory dwells. What's he talking about? He's talking about the ark sitting in the tent that he prepared for it with the night and day worship going. And he would say, I want to meditate on the beauty of who you are in the place your glory dwells. He was talking about going into David's tabernacle and worshiping the Lord. Now, this is how significant this was, and you almost hear no one talk about this. This is just so wild to me. It was so significant in David's kingdom that he full-time started off with 288 uh, prophetic singers and musicians that were paid by the government to worship what he said, worship in the beauty of holiness. The centerpiece of the kingdom of Israel, the centerpiece of David's reign was he was paying, employing singers and musicians to never stop worshiping before the glory of God. Where do you think he got that idea? From heaven. Because in heaven, the worship never ceases. It continues day and night. The four living creatures and the 24 elders, they sing before the Lord, holy, 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 worthy, 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 just like we were singing it today. Don't you ever, do you ever notice that when we all begin to sing those simple phrases, holy, 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 worthy, 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 there's something that sort of hits the atmosphere. There's this transcendence that hits us. And it's as if our little moment of worship in our little room has now jumped up into a heavenly kind of atmosphere. What's because what we're doing is we're connecting the worship here with the worship there. We're coming into unity with the throne room in heaven. What's happening there is happening here. That's the point. 
that we as believers would come together around Jesus just the way that heaven has come together around Jesus. And so David, he he actually said that he saw the way the throne room was and according to the things the Lord showed him, he built the tabernacle and then ultimately had the blueprints for what would be Solomon's temple because of what he saw. I think it's clear as a bell, David was a prophet, yes, yes. And he went into heavenly encounters and actually saw the heavenly throne room and then he reproduced it on the earth. And beloved, that was the centerpiece of his kingdom. And it was from there, the authority, the glory, the dominion of Israel, it expanded in David's reign and in David and Solomon's reign like it had never expanded before nor ever since. Because Jesus' glory, the the, the glory of God was at the center. Am I making sense? And so David employed 288 singers and musicians specifically trained to sing the song of the Lord and to prophesy, sing the word of the Lord in that place of worship and prayer. That was the centerpiece of his kingdom. It actually grew, which is just wild to me, to 4,000 singers and musicians. Now just think about that for just a second. 4,000 singers and musicians. Do you, do you understand how big of an orchestra that is? I'll tell you. <laughs> Take the largest orchestras from the 40 top cities in our nation, and it's not 4,000 musicians. It's bigger than the 40 largest orchestras in our nation. That's what David had going, and he was paying for it on the government's bill. Oh, hallelujah. (laughs) That's a a good plan right there. And I just want you to think this through for a second. Consider this, the implications of what does it mean that God would instruct David to invest that way, that extravagantly, in a worship gathering, in a ceaseless worship gathering. What, what was that about? Why would God do that? It's almost like he wanted his kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven. And that's what the Lord was was doing in David. He was giving a a really amazing example of what it looks like when the glory of God that's in the throne room begins to infiltrate a society and a culture and a kingdom. Now think about this, imagine this. There's the Ark of the Covenant. There's the glory of the Lord dwelling over the Ark. David would end up, he would write phrases like this. I want to uh, meditate on the glorious splendor of your majesty. And I love this one. He says, majestic splendor emanates from you. What's he talking about? He's talking about when he would come in and sit before the Ark and the glory of the Lord would be just flowing out of that place. And it would be giving him revelation and understanding. 
and Asaph and Heman and Jeduthun, who the Bible all calls prophets. They were serving before the Lord. They were prophesying the word of the Lord as the glory of the Lord was flowing out of that place, uh, that center place of his presence being preeminent. And here's what I want us to get to is that the Lord gave us David's kingdom and David's reign as an example. And in fact, it ends up becoming the blueprint for all the kings of Israel to follow. When they would fall away, they begin to worship other gods. When they would return in revival, they would begin to go back and worship, and the phrase is like this, worship according to David. They would reinstill the night and day worship and prayer before the ark. When they would come back to the Lord in a time of revival, they would take David's blueprint and they would make it the center of the kingdom. Now, this gives us real clarity because when Jesus shows up and he he walks onto the temple mount and he's in Herod's temple, it's this this rebuilt version. And and he's looking around and he sees all the money changers and and he sees all this, you know, commerce going on and they're using the temple mount and the sacrifices. They're using it as a a means to, to, to make a profit. And I can just imagine the son of God going, so where's, where's the worship? Because when, when they dedicated Solomon's temple, when, when, when it moved out of the tabernacle and it moved into the temple and Solomon dedicated it, you, you know this passage. It's the, you know, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray. It's in that whole passage in 2 Chronicles. That, that's when the fire of God fell, when they put the ark with the worship together with the mosaic sacrifice or sacrificial system. They put it together in Solomon's temple. That's where the glory of God came. And so here's what happens. Jesus shows up in the rebuilt temple and he walks around John chapter 2 and he's like where's the prayer and worship you've completely turned this thing into a deal with commerce and and how to get rich and and where's the glory of God and he says my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations you've made it a den of thieves And then at the end of Jesus' ministry, Matthew 21, he shows back up on the same temple mount and it's three years later and he says the same thing. Where is the worship? There's one time Jesus ever got physical with anybody and it was then. Those two, it was two times it's the same issue. John 2, flipping tables. Matthew 21, flipping tables. Beginning of his ministry, flipping tables. End of his ministry, flipping tables. Why is he flipping the tables? Because the presence of God is not being worshiped and adored at the center of the nation. It's the statement he's making. It's so interesting to me. So Jesus dies, resurrects. The veil of the temple is torn, signifying the glory of God is now out. We know that the spirit of God, when somebody gets born again, comes and lives inside of people. We get the outpouring on the day of Pentecost and man, Holy Spirit is blowing up things all over the region. People are getting saved. And then there's persecution that happens. Acts eight happens, they're persecuted, they're scattered. And all of a sudden, the brothers in Jerusalem, they begin to hear about something is happening down in Antioch. Well, Antioch is where there's a bunch of Gentiles, and they're getting saved. And that was completely new. 
And so when all the Gentiles are getting saved in Antioch, it's like, what's happening here? And, they, and Barnabas goes down there and then Barnabas gets there and he goes, man, I know a guy that would love this. Hey, Paul, you got to check this out. Paul comes down and they have full-blown revival in Antioch and they're doing things, Acts 13 is really clear, they're doing things around the presence of the Lord. When they gathered together and ministered to the Lord, the Lord said, separate unto me. They were doing this environment of worship and prayer in Antioch that was unusual. They were gathering around the Lord and allowing the Lord to give the dictates of the way the church should operate. Wow, what a crazy idea that the church would gather around Jesus and ask him to tell us what to do. It's exactly what they do in Antioch. Acts 13 shows it, and then here's what happens. Jerusalem begins to hear about all the Gentiles getting saved, and they're like, hey, we have to have a conversation, because some of the guys from Jerusalem go to Antioch and say, hey, you guys all have to keep the law. All you Gentiles, you've got to do this like Jews. And Paul goes, no, 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 no. It's not through sacrificing bulls and goats. It's through the blood of Jesus that they come into the kingdom. Now watch where I'm going with this. They all meet back in Jerusalem and they have the famous Jerusalem council. It's Acts 15. I know I'm spitting a lot of scripture. Just go back and read it. Listen to this later and read it. Acts 15. And they have a long discussion, the Bible says. And they're going back and forth. And Peter has had an encounter with Gentiles. And Paul is stating his case. And he's saying, these Gentiles are all getting saved. It's really happening. They're getting the Holy Spirit just like we did. They're getting born again just like we did. And finally, after they've exhausted themselves, James, who's the pastor of the church in Jerusalem, he stands up. And what James is going to do is he's going to invoke the Bible. He's going to quote the scripture to show the new church, to show this, this New Testament church that Gentiles are allowed to be a part of this thing, just like Jews, which is a major controversy of the New Testament. And when he shows up to quote this thing, he's, he could use, there are literally dozens of verses that talk about how Jesus would be a light to the nations, how the gospel would go to the nations. But he picks a verse that is so interesting, it's so significant, that we really have to pay attention to it. And it's Acts 15, I wanna look at this in verse 16. He says this, James stands up and he says this. The scriptures told us that after this, I will return and will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. I will rebuild its ruins and I will set it up so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. Even all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who does all these things. He quotes Amos 9, 11. And he says, the Bible tells us that the Lord is going to bring Gentiles into the kingdom and he's gonna utilize the tabernacle of David. He's gonna restore the tabernacle of David, which is simply this, Jesus' presence, the glory of God at the center of the people in adoration and worship. That's what it is. It's the people gathered around Jesus gathered around the glory, gathered around the presence. He says he's gonna restore the tabernacle of David so that all the nations can call on the Lord. 
It's amazing to me that he chose that passage. He could have chose anyone. But instead, he chooses one that invokes David, the, David's method, David's kingdom, David's centrality of, of worship and prayer as the means by which the nations would come to the Lord. And, and, and Susan did a prophetic painting this morning. Hallelujah, first time on Sunday morning. I loved it. She loved that. And she painted a nice star of David. When she started doing that, I was thinking, I'm about to preach all about David. That's Tabernacle of David, and we just, we just, I love it. The star of Israel, David's star sitting right there. I just go, man, it's working, like the prophetic painting thing. It actually worked. <laughs> well, here's what Amos 9:11 says. I know I'm going quickly, but we don't have much time. It describes, it quotes that, that, that we just quoted it, what James said, but it describes several other details. It says there will be a season when the plowman overtakes the reaper. It's talking about this, that the guy that's sowing the seeds, he runs into the guy that's harvesting the harvest. And the only way that that could ever happen is if there's so much harvest that they can't get it in fast enough, so now it's back time to sow seeds that the sowing and the harvesting is happening in mass. This concept of the plowman overtaking the reaper is about a season of massive revival. That's what he's describing, a season of massive harvest. And then he says, and they will possess the remnant of Edom. Edom is is a, a portion of the Middle East. It's literally speaking about massive salvation coming to the Islamic world. It's right there in Amos 9-11. And he says he'll do that through the restoration of the tabernacle of David. Now, beloved, I just want to be clear. I don't believe the restoration of the tabernacle of David is like what we're doing, like we're restoring the tabernacle of David in Lawrenceville, Georgia, (laughs) Gwinnett County. Like, I don't believe that. But what I do believe is this. There's a day coming. Jesus Christ is going to return. He's going to rule and reign. And when he sets up his kingdom here, Isaiah 16, verse five says this. It says, in mercy, the throne will be established and one will sit on it in truth in the tabernacle of David, judging and seeking justice and hastening righteousness. When Jesus sets up his reign on the earth, you know what he's gonna have right there in front of him? Live worship and prayer. Because on earth, it's gonna look just like what it is in heaven. Now, as odd as that might seem to us, we have to just digest this, that the throne room that God has been in from eternity is a place where his throne is encircled and enwrapped with worship and prayer. That's what he does. That's what he likes. That's how he sets up his kingdom. His kingdom isn't we show up together on Sunday and give him 25 minutes. That's not how God runs his kingdom. He runs it with perpetual worship and praise and glory and presence. And that's why in in, in this covenant that we live in, he's put his spirit on the inside of us so that at any moment I can close my eyes and boom, I'm right there. But when we come together, Paul said this, that you and I are being built together as what? A dwelling place for God in the spirit. And so when I look at James and he's invoking the tabernacle of David, I'm wondering, 
if we've completely kind of departed, which God is now restoring in our days, from this concept of God at the center, of his presence at the center, of worship at the center. When I look at church history, what you have to realize is this, that the church models that we see all over the earth, it actually comes from Greek culture where there is a, an environment of lecture. And that's the, the, through Roman Catholicism, that became the normative thing. One you know, sort of master gets up and lectures everybody. But what came out of the Old Testament and what they were invoking and the Jerusalem Council was this concept of God at the center and the people around God and worshiping and praising the beauty of holiness just like it is in heaven on earth. And from there flows all these kingdom realities, teaching, preaching, family, relationships, discipleship, deliverance, healing, power, all flowing from the glory of God. Strategy and clarity that the the church is supposed to operate in, it all flows from the place of his presence, beloved. And so, I know I'm a little excited. Here's what I'm trying to get us to see. Miraculously, beyond all bets, God gave us a live 24-7 worship environment. Not so that we could run a model, not so that we could have you know, co- cool worshipers and, and teams and a schedule, not for any of that, but so that we could be a people that have the presence of God at our center. And so when we come together on Sunday, that's exactly what we're trying to do. We're trying to organize around the presence of God. And when we come together in our house churches, we're we're joining hands with one another around the presence of God. We're loving him and loving one another. And, And when we're going in evangelism, whether it's to our neighborhoods or to the nations, we're going where? To the nations where from? The presence of God. And it's us putting the presence at the center And so when you think about some of the core strands of our DNA, this is the central one. Jesus at the center. Jesus getting the preeminence. Jesus getting the adoration. And this is kind of the way I think about it. You know, in the tabernacle of David, I just imagine that blue flame of the glory of God flickering there above the the Ark of the Covenant. And then these, these music these worshipers teams would come in. They had, they had 24 teams of 12 people when they started the thing, and they would all take an hour. They had an hour a day, seven days a week, and the Bible says that they were uh, paid for, and they didn't have any other, they had no other jobs but to worship the beauty of holiness. And they would come in, and I can just imagine, here they are, they're gonna set up, and they're gonna play their lyre, and they're gonna play their cymbals, and they're gonna play their harp, and they're gonna play these songs. And then David, he goes, hey, hey, here's some new lyrics. Play this song to, to the tune of the lilies. But you'll see that when you read the Psalms. Like it'll say, play this to the tune of the lilies. For the chief musician, you ever read the Psalms and it says for the chief musician? That's David writing the song and handing it to Asaph or, or Heman or Jeduthun before they went up in the worship. And, and he said, here, sing these lyrics to that other tune. It's gonna be really good. And they would, they would do it, and they would go in, and there's the flame of the glory of God. And they begin to worship in the beauty of holiness. And, and that phrase, in the beauty of holiness, it, it literally means wrapped in the, the beauty of the glory of God. 
the very glory of God in their midst, wrapping and encircling the musicians as they're singing and they're worshiping and it's on earth as it is in heaven. And I can't even imagine the, the, the revelatory atmosphere of, of beauty and, and understanding and they begin to sing a song from the Lord. Heaven begins to impress itself upon them and they sing a prophetic utterance and all of a sudden now, you know in the, in the, in the New Testament like Colossians 3, it says sing to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. They begin to do that in the tabernacle they're singing back and forth antiphonally to one another with the prophetic song of the Lord. And they begin to sing into the earth what God is saying from the throne room. And that's what they're doing. They're living like that. And that's the centerpiece of the kingdom. And beloved, I just think about our little place. How little, just that one little girl or one little guy up there just strumming her little strings. And I go, man, we're being built together as a dwelling place for God and the spirit. We have more verses about the glory inhabiting us and inhabiting our community. Bible verses, I'm not talking about prophecies, I'm talking about Bible verses, about the glory of the Lord dwelling in the midst of the people in this, in this time, in this covenant, in the new covenant. And I just think about one of those little worshipers, maybe you're that little worshiper and you're up there. Lord, I lift your name on high. I love to sing your praises. I'm so glad you're in my life. And they're worshiping and ministering to the Lord in the beauty of holiness. They're tending the presence, just like the Levitical priests in Leviticus 6.12, they put the fire on the altar. Well, the fire that's on the altar isn't a musical sound, it isn't a song. The fire on the altar is a heart that's there to tend the presence of God to dwell in his presence. One thing I ask, this one thing I seek, to dwell in your house, to gaze on your beauty, and to inquire in your temple. And beloved, this is who we are, and what an amazing, mind-blowing gift that God would give this to us, and what a shocking opportunity that we have to just, you don't have to be a worship leader, you don't have to be a platform gift, you can be like me, (laughs) and sing like that. But I'm sitting in the chair, and I'm worshiping and tending his presence just as much as anybody on the platform. And, and, and this, is how we, this is how we get to live. This is the way our church gets to be formulated. And this is my last thought. God is right now changing the worship environment on the earth. He's changing it. He's transforming it. Anybody that has any kind of, just any kind of glimmer of a little bit of a prophetic spirit, you can look at the last 30 years and you can see this thing looks totally different today than it did 30 years ago. The the way that we worship, the focus on the presence of Jesus, the centrality of Jesus, and then the proliferation of houses of worship and houses of prayer, places with presence centers all over the earth. He's repossessing his church, and he's putting his son at the center, and he's calling the church to worship in the beauty of holiness, because beloved, I'm telling you, there's a day when he's going to return, and all the nations will worship and adore him. His throne on the earth is gonna be wrapped in worship. And what I'm trying to explain to you is this, he's gradually shifting things. 
He's changing things right in front of us. The proliferation of this worship and prayer movement is such a testimony that he's getting ready to come. He's going to release his kingdom on the earth and every knee will bow, every tongue will confess and in mercy a throne will be established in the tabernacle of David. Righteousness and justice will go forth from him. Amen and amen. Let's stand. There's so much more theology on this. I am giving you the high, brief overview. But the idea that we have this honor as a spiritual family to host his presence and to live this way, what a beauty, what a glory. I want to again invite you, figure out how you can carve out two hours a week four hours a week to just come away and be with him in the prayer room, tending the glory of God. I know you can pray at home. I know that. We got that. We're talking about being a people who host his presence in our midst, who live this way. So I'm asking you, look at your schedule, figure it out. Maybe it's an early morning time. Maybe it's a a late evening time. Maybe it's afternoon. You know, my wife, she has this crazy schedule. She has to run here, run there, kids this way, kids that way. And then she figures out in the middle when she can drop this one off, come sit in the prayer room for an hour or two or something and then go get the other kid. Not because I make her something like that, but because Jesus is dwelling in our midst. So Lord, I ask, make us a people of your presence. Make us a people that we don't come together for programs. We don't come together for personalities. I'm so grateful you've given us this grace This 13 years, getting ready to go on 14 years of nonstop worship, but Lord, I pray you'd repossess us. You change the international house of prayer to an international house of presence, to Newbridge being a people that are bridging his presence to the world. Father, do it in our midst in a mighty, mighty way. Help us to reorder the way we think, where we spend our time, We would dwell, we'd be a dwelling place for God in the spirit, built together. The glory of God would dwell in our midst. Oh, we love you. Can we just worship him just for a moment? Just just don't run away right right now. We worship you, God. We're so grateful. We're so grateful. We're so grateful. We're so grateful. What an honor. What an honor. How blessed is the one you choose and cause to approach you, to dwell in your courts. We'll be filled and satisfied with the richness of your house. How blessed is the one you choose. God, I pray, just like what David had, 288 full-time leaders, singers, and musicians, would you give us 288? Would you just do that for us? To tend the glory of the Lord in our midst.
fill. Fill our spiritual family with glory. Fill this region with glory. And just like you did with David, the dominion went forth from that place of worship. Do it right here. Let dominion go forth. Let it go through every church. Let every person that names the name of Jesus experience the manifestation of your kingdom and the dominion of God. Bless every ministry around God. Let your glory flow forth. Oh, we give you thanks. We love you. We adore you. We're grateful. In the name of Jesus, everyone said amen. Amen Amen and amen. You are dismissed. God bless you.